podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, Boss Man. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. Today's conversation was inspirational. Super cool. We're going to talk about educating children, growing families while traveling all around the world, and systematically managing large teams. A big challenge for a lot of listeners of the show, certainly for me and you too. So a lot of topics we're going to cover on today's show. But at the top, I just wanted to bring you on and you know share some news. We're hiring a marketer for Dynamite Jobs tomorrow, a growth marketer. So if you're interested in working directly with Ian and myself, head on over to dynamitejobs.com and check out that job ad. What do you think about this one, Ian? I'm very excited about this one, Dan. What it does is like it kind of solidifies a little bit of traction in our business. And we're going to talk about traction on today's show, too. I think we finally have a little bit of a product market fit. And so I'm very excited to push the markets out of that. Yeah. And we don't really know how, because a lot of it's come from personal relationships, from the community, people that have listened to the podcast over the years. What we're really trying to do is branch out beyond that audience and find other ideal client types that would be interested in. Specifically, we're talking about our flat rate recruiting services, which continue to evolve. But our most popular product is, hey, we'll basically be an internal recruiter on your behalf for half the price. And it's just a flat rate fee to us. It's been working out really well for us, Dan. I think it's been working out really well for our clients. So we're excited to like bring that product to more people. Yeah. I think what's cool about it, if I were a growth marketer, I'd want this job because the results that I'm going to be able to create are so clear and discreet. So you're going to know if you're moving the needle or not. And the other element too, is just the amount of resources that we have laying around the shop here. You know, between all the proprietary data and amazing community and entrepreneurs around the business. I think it's sort of a field day for a marketer looking to have their career coming out party. Yeah, that's one way to put it. You know, one of the themes of this app, Ian, is COVID changes that have changed our lifestyle and our business. It's been a theme on the show since COVID, really. And I guess we've been thinking a lot about how the hiring landscape has changed, especially as we, you know, go to hire somebody this week. You had some interesting thoughts this morning. I I wanted you to share here publicly on the pod. A lot of things change, right? We're sitting, I remember we're sitting in my uh, shop in Austin talking about all the things that we thought were going to change and how we were yeah. wrong about a lot of those things. Rolexes are up. Stock, we stock, stock market's market up. It's going to crash. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, turns out now the government just print a bunch of money and now all that stuff is up. So it's like, we were just wrong about a bunch of stuff. And I think in some ways we're wrong about hiring too. I mean, I had some of my own predictions about like the things that I thought were going to happen. Certainly, I did feel like all these companies were going to go remote, or at least in the short term, and that has certainly happened. Some of them are coming back to the office, but some of them are not. You know, I don't think that there's like too much that's surprising for me there, except for this, which is essentially it has driven the cost of hiring remotely up dramatically. Because essentially what's happened is like every company or tons of companies, a lot more companies than previously want to hire remotely. And so basically, it's an employee's market, meaning these employees, they kind of have their pick. And so what we're seeing on the hiring side is like people with multiple offers, people driving the prices up at these different roles, companies having a harder time hiring. I kind of equated Dan to like manufacturing in China, like we were doing way back in the day. We had this huge competitive advantage when we first started manufacturing valet podiums of all things, right? Because all of our competitors were manufacturing in the United States, meaning you got this great idea. Hey, not only are we going to make a better product, we're going to do it in China and our costs are going to be much lower than everybody else's. It's kind of like that, right? So we had an advantage for a while and then our competitors started manufacturing in China. And then it was like, well, our cost isn't the competitive advantage. It has to be something else. And so for us, it was product. As I relate that to the hiring space, imagine if basically overnight, all of your competitors are hiring the same people that you were hiring before remote, and they're doing it at the same price. Or if they're a more established company, they can offer actually more salary than you can. So it's like, hold on a second. I was in competition with that guy over there. They had all these people in California. Now, instantly overnight, 
they've like closed their offices and decided to basically hire the same people that I was hiring, but they have more budget than me. So it can be devastating, I'm seeing for a lot of companies, you know. People are basically saying like this stinks. I used to be able to pay, you know, X amount of money for this. Now I can't find anybody to do this because essentially the hiring landscape is flattened out. As a parallel, let me dig into that and absorb our younger listenership back to an earlier version of our careers when it was like this idea of like, well, it's really tough to manufacture in China, but it's worth it because we'll be a cost leader. And so you start doing it. And there was this sea change where our best competitors were typically people who owned their own factory in the US. I mean, I remember doing the numbers on that, man, to buy all these lathes and hole punchers and machines, man, those guys, they have to make tons of sales every year just to make sure that factory's buzzing. But I'll tell you what, their quality's incredible. And enough people started looking into this China thing over time that there was like a turning point. There was a moment when all of a sudden, now not only is China the cost leader, but it's just how people do business because it's actually easier to get things made in China. There's a whole city over there that does what that factory does in California or in Texas. And so I feel like that's sort of the sea change we've seen through COVID. So one of the naive thoughts I had at the beginning of COVID is, oh, this is going to be great for our community. Now everybody knows about us. And actually, if you're out there trying to hire a highly skilled remote employee and you're a bootstrapper, it's probably gotten worse for you because yeah. now everybody else wants to manufacture in China too. And so if you're a Fortune 500, Fortune 5000 company, this has been an amazing time for you. If you're an executive there, you're chomping at the bit, looking at all this opportunity to cut costs, to get more specific people into your company, to outsource more, and to challenge the inherited beliefs that, hey, everything made in the USA is better than things that are made in China. Well, that's not just true. Just because you have a bunch of people in an office in San Francisco, it doesn't mean your startup's going to be better. Now, you've got the simultaneous, this rich get richer thing that's happened during this inflationary period is that now you've got all this money that is flooding into the tech space simultaneously saying, we don't know what to do with this cash, but we're going to put it in tech because if we diversify across X number of investments, a few of you are going to become utilities like Facebook or Twitter, and the whole portfolio is going to make sense. That's a long way of saying, if you want to raise money to run a startup right now, this is a good time to do it. And so you got this whole environment sort of conspiring against bootstrappers. It's made it very, very challenging if you want to hire. Essentially, the labor force has stayed exactly the same. I mean, you got a year worth of people running off doing Linda, you know, tutoring and online schools, but it's just not enough, you know, for the demand of now instantly we're just all remote. Almost makes you want to go get a job, Ian. I feel like we were looking at like we wanted to hire this very specific like CMO type the other day, like that had done X, Y, and Z campaigns, and the numbers coming back were like, man, that's pretty good. <laughs> it is pretty good, and it's very competitive out there. So, you know, not only for us, like you know, the amount of like remote job boards that have like popped up and hiring services and things like that. It's just that's been through the roof. I get on Crunchbase and I think like, oh, this company they have 50 million dollars in funding too that's going through the roof and then on top of it you know the demand for remote workers has gone through the roof so there's just some things i think that we didn't anticipate dan and we're trying to navigate ourselves through this but you know i think at the end of the day this is going to be a net positive i think it'll be a net positive for employees because like it's kind of like a rising tide in terms of salaries going up worldwide and then I think for companies, you know, it's going to represent somewhat of a paradigm shift too, where, you know, leasing less office space, hiring more acute or better talent, I might say, throughout the world. Now it'll be a positive, but it's going to be interesting to watch it shake out for the next year or two. Yeah. And I will tell you what, it's an amazing opportunity for the listeners of this show to create services that replace the increasing cost of very specialized high-level employees. There's a way that you can bundle together a bunch of lower cost solutions around a process, around expertise, around a sales system, and launch productized services to help you know with this incredible surge in demand we're seeing for remote labor. More on that in a future episode. Appreciate the news update. You know, back to this particular episode, 
look, COVID has completely changed the way we do business and for so many of us, our lifestyles as well. Like we talked about last week, it drove us to really focus on dynamite jobs, Ian. Well, in today's conversation, I'm going to speak with someone who used it as an opportunity to implement a whole different educational experience for their children. I'm Carrie McKeegan, and I run a business that does taxes for Americans who live abroad. So it's called Greenback Expat Tax Services. And we also have three little boys who are seven, nine, and recently turned 12. Maybe just to set a little context, Carrie, could you let us know about your lifestyle? Like, where do you guys live and, and stuff like that? So we left the U.S. in 2002. We haven't lived, we've lived abroad since 2002. I was realizing, you know, recently, I've actually lived outside of the U.S. longer than I've lived inside of the U.S. in my lifetime. We live in Costa Rica at the moment in a small town called Nosara, but we travel a lot. So we are there probably eight months a year as opposed to kind of full time. We also uh, spend a bit of time in the U.S. So our families are from the New York, Connecticut area. So we try to make sure that we're here in summers and holidays and some things like that. We've been in Costa Rica for about two years, but before that we were, we've been kind of all over. So before that we were in Bali for many years, for about eight years. We were in Argentina for a couple years, lived in London for six years, Barcelona for two. So <laughs> kind of all over the place. Hardcore digital nomad credential. Yeah. <laughs> With three kids. <laughs> Now, Carrie recently posted something on Facebook which caught our eye because we've seen a lot of surging interest in the community and doing exactly what Carrie and Dave are doing. Living globally, but trying to figure out how that all fits with trying to educate kids and schooling and all that. So I'm just going to read a shortened extract of that post. So, quote, in late 2019, Dave and I wrote our family themes for 2020. At the top of the list, we wrote, reinvent education for the kids. We'd always been interested in homeschooling, but very nervous, and knew for certain that our kids would learn best by doing, and also have three very different kids. We also noticed that once you change the question to how to best educate your children, instead of what is the best school for your kids, the options feel endless and exciting. Little did we know that three months later, sped up by COVID, that very fuzzy idea would become very real. It definitely hasn't been easy. But here we are now, second year of all three kids, each doing their own thing education-wise with a mix of small schools, tutors, co-learning spaces, project-based learning experiences, accredited U.S. curriculum, art adventures, the works. <laughs> Stick around for more. So every year, and I should say every year, most years, we sort of spend some time at the beginning of the year and try to think, you know, what do we want this year to be about? For a long time, a lot of that was all about, you know, business objectives, right? So you'd sit down, you'd be trying to think through what you wanted to do with your business. And so we're trying to be really intentional about making sure that it's more than just that, right? So we're really kind of focusing on what we want our lives to be like. We've been really interested for a long time in this idea of kind of alternative schooling, but incredibly uncomfortable with it, right? It's like, gosh, where do you start? What do you do? You know, like, how do you kind of do all this? But there's something about it that always felt a little bit off in terms of the way that we were. We've always done things kind of unconventionally. So to do school very conventionally just doesn't kind of make sense. So this year we put at the top of that list, reinvent education. And the thing that I say about that a lot is that people often sort of start with this very narrow scope of thinking, what school do I want my kids to go to? And we were really trying to like kind of expand that out and think, how do you want to educate your kids as opposed to what school do you want your kids to go to? So just really trying to make that year, which ended up being absolutely the case for a million other reasons, but make 2020 all about how do we actually expand that out and think about education really differently. And what were some of the goals that maybe you guys had that would be different than if you were just thinking about selecting schools? Because it, it seems scary to reinvent the education wheel. Like there's a right. clear idea right. out there in the <laughs> society of what education means. Does it mean something different to you guys than what the schooling system was offering? I mean, I'm absolutely not kind of anti-school. I think there's a lot of really, really fabulous schools out there. But I think that a lot of the times you kind of go into trying to think through education in a very narrow construct, right? So you're thinking about what subjects should someone learn? 
And for our kids, the main thing that we saw is a couple of things. One, we've got three kids. They're pretty close together in age, but they could not possibly have more different personalities. So right off the bat, you're like, there's no one school that would be great for them. I mean, if you're sort of custom choosing, you know, what's good for, for your kids, there wouldn't be one place that would work really, really well. But then the other things that we were seeing is that when we traveled with them, it was a hugely different thing, right? So you'd see learning happen organically in a way that had nothing to do with school. And it was a better education than what you were seeing in school. So for example, one trigger kind of moment that I think back on is when we were in Bali, we loved the school that the kids were going to in Bali. It was absolutely fabulous. But we had this moment, they were really strict about attendance, right? And that doesn't work that great for our family because we're always traveling. And so we had this one moment where we were trying to make a decision. We wanted to go on this trip to Borneo. So we wanted to do this you know, trip on the river in Borneo to see the orangutans. And I was like, we're going to get a letter from the school. Like the school's going to kick our kids out if we take the kids on this trip because we've already done all these different trips that particular year. And I just kind of sat down and realized this is like, this is not a dilemma that makes sense, right? So you know that it is a better education for the kids to go and learn about orangutans in the wild. You know that, you know intuitively that that makes more sense. And school is sort of limiting your ability to do some of these things that are much more experiential. So there's been just little moments of time like that, that I've kind of had, hmm, you know, like maybe school isn't the right thing for a family like ours, if we can open things up in such a way with travel or do all these different experiences that school would kind of, you know, the opportunity cost of putting kids in school, having their days be from kind of nine to four being in school is stopping you also from doing some of the other things. What did it look like putting it into action then for you guys? So you had this idea, it's on a piece of paper. What did you do? So this was early 2020, right? Were you pre-pandemic mindset at this point? Pre-pandemic mindset had no idea what was going to happen, right? And we had, <laughs> But we had all these plans. And our plan was literally just to pull them out of school, right? And do what we wanted, but keep them enrolled in a school. We had like sort of these grand plans. We were going to do like a month traveling around in New Zealand. We were going to go to Ghana and build a well there and have the kids actually raise money to do it. We were going to do all these things, right? And then got back to Costa Rica. So this was, you know, we're here in New York for Christmas. Got back to Costa Rica. And a couple of weeks later, we're sitting at the dinner table. And we always do this thing where we said to go around and say to the kids, like, you know, what was the best part of your day and the worst part of your day? Something you learn. And you just kind of chat about your day, right? We ask, Jake, our our now nine-year-old, what he learned. He has all these things. He's all animated. He's talking about this stuff. And then we do the same thing with our seven-year-old. He's all animated. He's talking about all these things. And we turn to our now 12-year-old and say, what did you learn? And he was like, he literally, and he's this really vibrant, happy, easygoing kid. And he was like, I'm not learning anything I want to learn. Like, and he literally just was like, I'm so unbelievably frustrated. And we're like, hmm, that is not at all what we want to be doing here, right? Basically, the way that schools work, and of course, everyone knows this, but sometimes you don't question really obvious things, but the way that schools work is you're trying to average everyone out to the middle, right? So you have these subjects, and let's say you are really fabulous at math and really only okay at reading and, you know, kind of in the middle at, in science, right? Like the school's job or the teacher's job in that context is to take the class and average them into the middle of that. So if you are the most fantastic mathematician and you are in third grade, you are not going to be doing ninth grade math. You're going to be told, that's really great that you finished that early. Sit and wait quietly until the other students finish their work, right? Even in the best of classrooms. And that was a lot of what we were seeing happening with our oldest and that he was really excited about certain things, but literally was being stopped from going deeper into some of the areas he wanted. We actually pulled him out of school before the pandemic hit. So we pulled him out of school in about February and had him doing, it was this really cool group of parents that kind of came together and we said, you know, here's a couple of kids. They all kind of, you know, we live in this incredible environment in Costa Rica. Let's use it. Let's take advantage of all the kind of local talent that is here and really do it. They started doing these project-based learning groups with those particular kids. You had anywhere between four and six kids from like 10 to, you know, 15 years of age. We said sort of, let's try this project-based learning idea, which is essentially give the kids a set of problems and have them help solve them, as opposed to sit in front of them and tell them how things work, say to them, here's what we're trying to figure out, how would you do this? What's an example? 
one example, so actually one that they're about to do right now, I'll tell you the one that they're just about to do, then I can tell you some of the others, is called Water, Water Everywhere, which is the idea that living in Costa Rica, right near the ocean, and you've got water there, you've got a problem with kind of the water being polluted, but about a problem with construction in the particular town that we're in. And so what they'll do in that particular project is they'll actually go, they'll try to understand the influence of the particular government that they've got in Costa Rica on some of the environmental policies, test the water, understand pH levels, understand bacteria levels, understand all of that, and try to kind of put that all into context and then re-educate the town on what those problems are. So another example, and both of these happen to be kind of ocean related, but they're not always like that, is that there was actually a, there was a drowning in Nosara that happened in December. And Often, actually, what they do with these project-based learning things is they say to the kids, what do you want? Like, there's a couple different ideas that come up, and the kids figure out what problem they want to solve. So in that particular context, the project was meant to be something different. I can't even remember what. But what the kids said is, let's actually literally learn all about riptides, understand, like, do a map of the entire beach. And then they created a video and presented that back and started to share that with the community as a whole. It's literally like it's the idea that you're sort of putting kids into these, into a situation where instead of being just a learner and being educated in terms of, you know, here's how things work, that you're helping sort of to, to try to put them in leadership positions in a very kind of multidisciplinary type way. It feels like, yeah, the why has been missing from, that was missing from my education. I was always asking myself, why am I learning this? And it was very hard to understand. I guess my, basic idea of like moving to a more homeschooling environment would be, well, because mom and dad said so. (laughs) (laughs) And like, that would be a concern of mine, you know, like, are these kids going to listen to, it sounds like you're not the one defining all the things. No, no, no. So, you know, and this was probably my biggest fear about homeschooling. Like I, I would not be a good homeschool teacher, right? Like I'm the parent and those are completely different things. And I respect, you know, families that figure out how they can both be parent and teacher, but that's not our model at all. Right. So, you know, our job as parents is to create the right opportunities. And often the opportunities are there. You just sometimes don't see them, right? So you literally kind of, if a kid starts to express an interest in something specific, like kind of helping them follow that thread as opposed to, oh, we'll do that at another time because you're right now, you know, you have to go to school or you're enrolled in this particular activity at the moment. So you're outsourcing this to professional teachers who are not in the system, essentially, or people who have skill set for this. Yes. So we've got a combination of things and each kid, so I'm, you know, giving you some examples from our oldest who just turned 12, but each kid actually has a completely different setup. But it all, basically the construct for each is that it is either like a couple of kids with a tutor doing kind of a basic curriculum, which is the, we use the Oak Meadow curriculum. And they do that to be able to have some sort of an overall grounding, kind of the base. And it also helps because it's accredited, right? So if you want to then show to, you know, universities or the world at large, like I've done school this year, you've got this accredited curriculum. And then in the afternoons do these project-based learning groups Or a series of other things, right? So like my, you know, seven-year-old has a teacher that used to work at the school down there, and she takes the kids on, on these art adventures. It's him and a buddy, and they literally go into nature, into trees, kind of find all this stuff. And they, they learn art, but like in this very tactile, not sitting with the easel type way, like they're kind of out in, in nature. So that's another example of the kind of things. But no, essentially, we're not doing any of the teaching. Our job is to really help with the love of learning and to make sure that we're lining them up with the right teachers. So one of the things, like commitments we made to the kids when we started all this, we said, if there's something that you want to learn and you want to go deeper on, we will make it happen. So we will find you somebody who can teach you. So it's kind of more that you find the student, the teacher appears as opposed to we're lining this specific thing up for you and you have to be interested in that, even if that's not naturally where you're at. There's a secret to why so many listeners of this show are in the know when it comes to SEO. That's right. They call smashdigital.com. The founder, Travis Jameson, has been on the show countless of times. And I got to say, a heartfelt and honestly has been an incredible inspiration and has done so much for the listeners of this show in terms of them ranking better and creating more results for themselves and their families. 
That's my copy. Here's the ad copy. So many listeners of this pod use the services of smashdigital.com. They really know what they're talking about. This is a skin in the game operation. That means they use the exact same methods for their clients that they do to rank their own portfolio of profitable businesses. They are selling the strategies that they are using. They are practitioners and it's incredibly empowering to deal with no BS experts who are just straight up and honest about what they can and can't do for your rankings and SEO in general. Bottom line is this, smashdigital.com provides SEO services for people who understand SEO. So if you want to have Smash Digital in your business's back pocket or just learn more about what they do, check them out over at smashdigital.com. A big shout out to the team over there for sponsoring the TNBA pod. And how is this going to work as you guys continue to move around the world? You know, that's a good question because no, the town that we're in is really special. Like, so there's a lot of people doing this. There's a lot of people that have these set up ways for us to kind of participate. It's not just, it's not us kind of creating all these opportunities. So I think that if we were sort of to move somewhere else, we'd have to make sure that we're moving somewhere that the community is also really open to the idea of, of untraditional learning approaches. It kind of creates that need. You know, it's similar to kind of how, you know, if you're a digital nomad, you end up going to other places where digital nomads live because you're looking for like-minded people. So I think it just kind of, it's something that you'd then seek out to be able to, you know, have that environment and have that kind of cultural norm. Are there costs associated with this? How are they relative to traditional school or private school? We were paying for three private school tuitions before this. And it's probably about the same. It might be a little bit more sometimes, depending on what the kids are interested in, right? So, (laughs) you know, sometimes the kid's interested in, like our seven-year-old loves horseback riding. So he goes horseback riding a couple times a week. That is cheaper in Costa Rica than it is in the US, you know? And so if a kid was extraordinarily interested in horseback riding in a lot of places, that'd be exorbitantly expensive, right? Right. So there's things like that. It kind of varies. But it's probably about that about the same pricing as a private school. Can you talk about like what you were worried about at the beginning versus the reality of the situation and and now maybe some of your new worries? I absolutely did not want the idea of like either Dave or I sitting with a blackboard behind us, like forcing a kid to do schoolwork is you know, I mean, that would be absolutely horrendous. And we have had those moments where we've had moments where it's like, like, oh man, they need to figure out how to do this. And all of a sudden you do that and you're like, wait, 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 we're like totally falling off the cliff here in terms of what these philosophies are, right? So, you know, you absolutely need to kind of let the kid lead a bit. I was very worried about that. I was very worried that if we didn't know something, that that would end up being a gap for that particular child. So for example, our son, Jake, who's nine, is really, really into science. I mean, I don't know anything about science, like nothing at all, right? Like everything that I learned in school, I memorized, I took a test on it, and then I forgot it right away. And Dave's kind of the same. And so we're like, how are we going to be able to kind of satisfy that need? And so you do need a community and you do need to kind of find teachers and either formal or informal to do that. That's been easier than I expected by far to kind of find people who are excited to sit with your kid and teach them something if they are genuinely curious. It's not hard to imagine how you would remember more about science had you been tasked with helping people stop drowning or by saving the community water table. Right. It instantly makes sense. <laughs> you know, the other piece about it is the, the travel component, right? So, you know, for us, a huge part of this was actually having the kids be learning through being elsewhere. You know, I was a little bit nervous, right? So you you say, okay, now we're going to have a lot of their education be through travel. Like we don't want to necessarily just, you know, all of a sudden take these trips and be like touring each museum and, you know, doing it that way. Because that's partly, I mean, sometimes museums are incredibly interesting, but sometimes that's not the best way to experience that particular place that you're going to. And what I've found is that actually the way that you prep for a trip and the way that you kind of help kids get excited about it really makes a huge difference to that. So we haven't had to say, okay, sit here and let's go to this museum so you can learn this or this museum so you can you know, learn that. You actually get a lot of that. They do a lot of reading beforehand, you know, questions. Then you get there and all of a sudden they're like asking questions of people who live in that particular place and like learning through, you know, the experiences they have when they're, when they're abroad. A lot of this sounds like a lot of work and 
like it's different all the time. And I imagine the virtue of like up at 7.15, out the door at 7.45, get out of my hair until 5 p.m. Do you guys have a similar mindset towards scheduling? How does it all work in terms of the logistics of the day-to-day? Yeah. No, I mean, I have to say the logistics, especially with three kids, is by far the toughest part of it, right? What we're seeing in terms of the kids, how they're thriving, how magical it is, the learning is makes it all worth it. But it does feel like you're kind of almost trying to reinvent you know, not, well, it is trying to reinvent, but you're trying to kind of, you know, take on the administrative duties of what a lot of people know how to do in schools just intuitively, right? They have all those networks, they have those contacts. I mean, the amount of places we're driving kids to, luckily we're in a small town, so it's not an issue, but like all the driving is really tough. So it's definitely, logistically, it's definitely really tough to do it the way we're doing it. Now, there's also, you know, if that really scares people, right? If they're saying, oh, I really want to do some of this, but without all of those logistics, Things to keep in mind is a couple of things. One is we've got three little kids. Our 12-year-old can actually do a lot of this stuff on his own, right? Like he rides his bike to things and does that and he organizes, you know, a lot of it, right? He's got a Google calendar and he says, <laughs> oh, I want to sign up for this particular thing or I'm going to that. And so there is an element of like, if you're going to change things around and make the kids more responsible, you're not necessarily expected to coordinate all of that for them either, right? There has to be a little bit of, you know, being proactive and in that moment, depending on the age of the kids. But also you, you know, you need to do it with a bunch of other families. Otherwise, it's not all that experiential for a kid to sit and try to create the world's problems in and of themselves, right? They're not going to sit there by themselves trying to do that. So you end up finding that some of the village aspect of it really helps to kind of ease the pain of some of the logistics. Yeah, how much you do this if you were based in, let's say, like a medium to large size U.S. city? Would there be some ways to implement what you've learned? I don't know. I have to say, you know, when we're in Connecticut, we have the hardest time trying to find some of those experiences than, you know, when we're here. Which is strange because you're right next to the one of the most important cities in the world. It seems like it would be overflowing with resources. Well, what I was going to say is when we go into New York City, that's no problem whatsoever, right? So there's a difference between kind of, you know, suburban living versus like being in a city where it's like, you know, those opportunities are everywhere. So we've had the hardest time here. It might also just be because we don't have the resources or the kind of relationships here, you know, that we do in New York City or that we do in other towns. So in terms of implementing that, you know, there, if you're traveling a lot, I think it's pretty easy to implement a lot of, you know, what we're doing because you're out there actually experiencing things. Your kids are actually, you know, able to do that. I think there's also, depending on the, on how online, you know, how interested your kids are in terms of being online, there's a way to replicate some of this by being online, doing some of your kind of actual education online, the base part of it. So like accredited curriculum or whatever, and then just getting out and about, right? So if you're staying home all the time and you've just got your kid at home, it's kind of the opposite of what we're trying to do, which is you're learning by doing and experiencing and kind of getting out there. feels like for me as a kid, it would resonate to me this idea of like the accredited base, but trying to be efficient with it. If it's not your entire life doing this thing for an end, someday maybe I'll get to college or whatever, if instead we're being efficient about it, that's like a compelling value proposition too. I wonder, does that resonate with your children? Like, hey, I need to get to the fourth grade or whatever? Yes and no. So I think that, you know, to me, it kind of feels like a safety net. So one of the things that I think is actually, you know, if you kind of talk about pros and cons of this approach, it's a lot, right? So you're really, you're literally saying, I'm going to completely change the way that I'm educating my kids. And that's a huge kind of, I don't know if burden is the right thing, but it's a huge element of responsibility. If in 20 years, the kids all of a sudden are like, I don't know how to do this one thing, we're going to be like, ah, we totally screwed that up, right? So there is an element of having like something that's accredited, that's well-rounded to be sort of that safety net of like, okay, here's the base part of it. So I think that's, you know, works for us. For the kids, you know, our oldest really cares a lot about going to a good university. So he really wants to make sure that he has all of that stuff on paper that looks, you know, very buttoned up and capable of doing that. I think there's a lot of ways to do that. So I think having a blog and having a business and doing all of those things is probably going to do more for that than necessarily the accreditation. But what's been nice is that when you're doing it individually, so like the the curriculum that we're using as the base, you can kind of go the level that you want. So for example, our 
nine-year-old is should be in fourth grade but he's very good at math and science so he's just doing the fifth grade curriculum and that's accredited but just at a different level you know you can kind of pick and choose out of it there's a lot more flexibility there what i've noticed and i just want to get your reaction to this is that generally speaking parents seem to agree that third culture kids sort of advance faster they have a more fruitful educational experience by virtue of their lifestyle, they might have a leg up in terms of their education relative to children who are you know, just in one school, a classical school. But that the tide sort of turns when they become teenagers and that it's important for them to sort of be rooted in a school. And that's just sort of the story I hear time and time. Like, this, all, this is all great, this alternative stuff, but the moment they're a teenager, I want to make sure I've chosen a high school that they can be in. What are your thoughts about that? What's driving that thinking and where do you agree and disagree with it? I mean, I would say we don't really know yet because our oldest is 12, so we don't know for sure. But I originally, if I would have looked back a couple years ago, I would have thought that started at middle school, right? Like I would have been like, oh, you know, it starts then. And if you'd looked back even several years before that, I probably would have said, oh, probably by the time they're in like second or third grade, you should have something a little more traditional. So I think there's an element of like, you don't know what you don't know, and that you think at some point that's going to be important. But I'm seeing kids, a lot of kids in the town that we live in, actually not need that at all in high school, even though their parents also genuinely believed, okay, when we get to ninth grade, we're going to move back to Colorado, we're going to move back to wherever and like put them in a traditional school. So I'm seeing a lot of people who believe that then get to that point in their kid's life and don't find that to be the case once they get there. What about this idea of kids um, bonding with their friendship group and then being like living a nomadic lifestyle where they're only in that town for three months or six months out of the year? Yeah, no, I was going to say the one thing I do see is that kids want to make sure they have that consistent social circle. So, you know, that hasn't been an issue for us at all because we're, you know, the town we're in is fairly not nomadic. I mean, people are living there year round, but like it's totally okay for a kid to come and go. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like we were gone for several months over the summer come back and the kids are playing with the same friends the next morning, you know, no interruption, you know, whatsoever. So I don't really think that's that much of an issue. I think if you go somewhere very, very traditional, right? So if you're used to being in a very traditional school environment, it feels very strange if your peer group is all there all the time, if you're dipping in and out of that, right? Like if you're the kid who's not there. Whereas if everyone's pretty fluid and used to kind of the lack of convention, that doesn't feel like an issue at all. I think that it just depends on who the kid's social circle is as to whether that ends up being an issue to be a little bit more fluid as opposed to fixed in one place all the time. And that if you are doing this kind of schooling or education journey with a number of families that are like-minded, actually all of them are doing it that way and that's all the kids know. So it doesn't end up being something where you've got these little cliques of kids that are hanging out together all the time. And if one kid's away for a month, they come back and feel weird. I mean, that hasn't been our experience and I don't think it needs to be. It's very interesting you mentioned that because I was just kind of reflecting on this idea of, you know, just how important things like shame and normalization are, especially in high school amongst children. It's a little tribe of kids running around all trying to figure out where everybody stands and how different you are from others and then how you process that information is the critical thing. I think so many of us, myself included, I I was in a very, what you call traditional high school environment. And so it's terrifying to think about being like on the fringes of all that Mm -hmm. initially, but it's easy to then imagine a scenario where it's the norm to leave for two months at a time. And certainly uh, there are socioeconomic strands or or types of groups in the world that are like that. And then all of a sudden, yeah, who cares? (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, it's it's an obvious point, but kids kind of only know what they've been exposed to. So if they've always all been, you know, had this kind of untraditional schooling and they're not expecting to all sit in one building together for nine months of the year for their entire childhoods and they're meeting kids from all over and they have some friends that they know from these activities, some friends from another part of the world or whatever, like it honors their individuality so much more to do things that way than to feel like they have to be part of this one group that they grew up with every single year that they can't stray away from if that doesn't work for them particularly. One of the resources you mentioned was the five-hour school week. 
Sounds sort of like the four-hour work week. What's... Yeah, I think it was probably coined exactly after that, right? And I have to say, like, I really struggle with resources. I liked that book. I thought it was really interesting. But there hasn't been one, you know, and I'm a huge reader, but there hasn't been, like, one book or blog or whatever that, like, has felt to me like it really has all the values that we do. There's a lot of things where you're like, I mean, it's, it's good to read all of this stuff because it allows you to have something to react to. You kind of then develop an opinion based on that. But, you know, you read a lot of these blogs and they talk about how terrible school is. And it's like, well, no, school's not terrible. You just have to sort of, there's a lot of schools that are really great. And I'm sure there's certain times of life where that is better for your kid than not. I mean, you just have to kind of be very intentional about it. So I think that I'm having a hard time finding any resources that really resonate fully because what we're doing is trying to just be really intentional with each kid at each particular time of life. I'm sure there's a lot of people sort of inspired to hear your voice about what you're doing. What might be some next steps that you would recommend people to take, given it's not really a clear path? That's a good question. I mean, I guess what I would say is that you don't have to go completely into school or no school right away, (laughs) right? The way that we pulled our kids out is we first had pulled out our oldest in a moment where we thought this isn't right. And then COVID happened and we were like, all right, let's try something else out. And then that was working so well. So we literally kind of did it all at once. Even before we were doing that, like the idea of kind of pulling your kids out for extended periods of time and traveling and just being a little unapologetic about that, I feel like is important, right? So not being like, I'm really sorry, I have to take my kid out to do this really amazing thing. Being like, nope, I'm coming into the school and saying, I think it'd be really great for my kids to experience X, Y, and Z. Help us figure out how to kind of build that into the program, right? So do they need to do some extra math beforehand or keep up with some assignments like to do that, but not to kind of always say no to those things because of the fact that it doesn't fit within the confines. And then also, I think, you know, the other thing is having tons and tons of kind of books around is a huge thing. If you want to make sure that kids can follow their interests, literally just letting them have any book they want and kind of always having around makes a huge difference. I know that seems silly and small, but we have a policy that your any bookstore will buy any book that they're willing to read. And it makes a huge difference. There's tons of books all over. They're kind of pursuing some of those passions. And then also, I think, allowing kids to sort of feel comfortable with choosing what they want to be learning and saying, I will help find you resources to do that. And then really following through matters too. So if your kid says, I'm extremely interested in how to build a rocket, like there's this tendency of like, oh yeah, we'll do that at some point. Or, you know, that'd be really interesting. I'm sure we'll find that. But like to be like, okay, I'm going to literally take that seriously and say, you really want to know how to do this thing. I'm going to like kind of search the recesses of my brain of who I know that knows how to do that or find you resources or a kit or whatever. And like kind of just take that a little seriously. So those are some small things that you can do just to start. Incredibly special. It's cool to imagine it. But I occasionally have this recurring dream that like I didn't graduate high school and I got stuck there like another year. You know, I didn't finish (laughs) the one requirement. So when you go to the schools and you say, hey, we're going to take them out. Is everybody all good if like you finish the U.S. certified curriculum? You said it was Oak. Oak Meadow. Oak Meadow curriculum that, hey, we're going to be out of here for six months doing all this amazing things, but we'll do the Oak Meadow stuff and we're going to dump them back in next year. Is everybody cool with that? Well, so what we're doing is just Oak Meadow and that is totally within our own schedule. So we can, it could take two years for them to do the 36 weeks of fifth grade if we so chose. So that is designed to not have any of those limitations. Well, actually, I don't know if you can take two years. I think there is some time frame where they say enough is enough, but it's not meant to be like you need to finish this this week and this next week and this the week after. So the way we have it set up right now, it, it doesn't have any of that. I guess the question is, is like this idea of like you bring this feral fifth grader to like a school all of a sudden because what does that school have to say about that? Did they just let them into the fifth grade or is there qualifications or how does it work? I mean, if you're going back to a U.S. public school, they have to take them, right? So it's like, it's, it, it is what it is. For a lot of places, that's true. For us, if we were to go send the kids back to school, it would probably be an IB school and it would be somewhere in Europe. So when you say IB, what do you mean? International Baccalaureate. Got it. Which is... Um, Fancy international schools for diplomats? <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> So the school that 
the kids went to in Bali was an IB school. And it a lot of what I'm describing, kind of this idea of learning through doing and project-based and all of that, like that curriculum is the closest I've been able to find to something like that. So if we were to do that, you definitely, you'd probably have to do some placement tests to make sure that everyone's on the right page. But what we're doing with having the Oak Meadow accredited gives them a transcript. And that's why we're doing that. Partly for our own, like, let's make sure that they're still well-rounded, but partly so that it doesn't close any doors in the future. Is there anything else you want to say on the topic to the audience? I mean, I guess the main thing I would say is that it is important to kind of think back through why schools were invented and why it's set up that way. So I think a lot of people really think it is what it is, right? This is how kids learn and this is how kids best learn. But if you look back at kind of the history of school, the reason why school is set up is partly because parents needed a place to send their kids from nine to five while they worked, right? There's an element of this might be how people best learn, but there's also a big element of childcare with it. When you start to rethink, you know, how would somebody best be educated? How would a kid best be educated? It's also important to remember that the reason why it's set up that way, the reason why schools are set up that way, aren't 100% just because that's the best way to learn, right? So sitting in a classroom with 20 kids with a teacher in front, there isn't a lot of research or evidence that says that's the best way that people learn, right? Most of the research says people learn best by doing, people learn best by experiencing. Tactile is really important. What the world needs is leaders, and this doesn't create leaders. So I guess I would just say, like, there's an important mind shift of, like, knowing why you're choosing that particular setup. School is not designed just for the best interest of education of kids, but actually also for society as a whole. So if you have the kind of privilege and the opportunity to be able to move away from that, like, don't feel like, oh, I'm doing something that is sort of going against an established norm that is really great for my kids, but rather, is this actually the best thing for the kids? And would it have been set up that way if we didn't need this kind of nine to five type childcare type setting for students? Let me take a moment to talk about our recruiting services at Dynamite Jobs. If you're thinking about hiring, our team can help you be more strategic. If you're in the middle of a time-consuming candidate campaign, we can take it off your plate. And if your HR team is having difficulty delivering the right team members, we can be their support. See, strategy, positioning, promotion, filtering, interviewing, and assessing, they are all a tremendous amount of very important work, even for organizations with seasoned HR teams. But our expert team does it every day, all day. And it's not just our expertise you'll be accessing. We run one of the largest remote job boards and databases of qualified candidates on the web. Why not work directly with a team who hires hundreds of A players annually for businesses just like yours? So if you run a remote first company, we can help you grow faster and smarter. And the best part is we charge just one simple flat fee for every hire. And with Dynamite Jobs Recruiting, your results are guaranteed. To learn more about how we can help you grow, head on over to dynamitejobs.com and click on the Hire With Us link. So cool to hear what Carrie and Dave are doing to support their kids' education by taking that word education and starting sort of at the broadest possible definition of what that could be. You know, I felt inspired, even though I'm not currently, don't currently have that as a project. I just love seeing the way Carrie breaks things down and executes on complicated projects. So speaking of complicated projects, Carrie is not only a great parent, She's really fun to hang out with too. I'll say that. Uh, I've had so many wonderful times with her in person over the years, but she's an amazing business person. Both Carrie and her husband, Dave, are definitely people I've looked to for advice time and time again over the years. So in the last segment of the show, I wanted to set up what I hope will be an ongoing discussion about being an effective manager in your business. It's something that I've spoken with Carrie about before, but recently There's been a thread in our online forum, the DC, about EOS, which stands for Entrepreneurial Operating System, pioneered and subsequently turned into a huge franchise by Gino Wickman, best known for his book, Traction. These days, you can get EOS implementers, basically consultants. You can have higher work for you for a very high price. You know, one of my critiques of Traction is a little bit complicated, so you kind of might be tempted to get a consultant to help you integrate that structure into your business. Now, I know Carrie has used this system in her business with success, so I wanted to get her input while it be an ongoing discussion here at the pod. I see it on your bookshelf behind you. 
oh my God, look at that. It's like I planned it that way and I did not. (laughs) We've had Gino on the show. You know, I've recently picked the book back up, Carrie, because our team is growing. There's 20 of us now. We don't really always seem like on the same page about what we're doing. Like a lot of us have different ideas about what would be like a good idea. And so we share that and we do that. And then we kind of, it's the next week already. Mm -hmm. And so I picked up the book. I was kind of groping for a little bit more structure alignment. And I thought it would be fun to talk to some people who've implemented entrepreneurial operating system in their business. Could you tell me a little bit about the story as to what inspired you to do so? We've actually had EOS in kind of a not perfect way for about five years. We set up as much as we could based on the book, but the way that we did it, which was a mistake kind of going back when I think about it, but we didn't know any better at the time, was I sort of picked the pieces that resonated most with me and implemented those things and left other things kind of by the side. You know, I would say, oh, you know what? I really like this idea. I'm going to implement that. And this one doesn't work so well. And so I'm not going to implement that. And what jumped out at you is like a sexy concept or the ones that resonated with you initially? I really liked kind of the VTO. I really liked the idea of this kind of vision traction organizer where you've got this document that helps lay out one year, three year, five year, like lays out the brand promise, lays out all those things. So that was something that we implemented off the bat. I liked some of the right people, right seat type methodology. And I really liked a lot of the the way that it works in terms of, you know, creating an issues and opportunities lists and having these level 10 meetings. And I would say that's the piece that, while it really, really spoke to me, was so much harder to implement than we thought, that we sort of thought we implemented it, but didn't do a good enough job implementing it. So it was less effective than now, five years later, where we're implementing it properly has kind of worked out. Why was it hard to implement? I mean, on the surface, they sound kind of simple. Well, first off, I think meetings management is one of those things that's simple, but difficult at the same time, if you know what I mean. like Meetings management, like being good at meetings? Being good at meetings. So the level 10 meeting is all about this like real strict discipline of, you know, I don't know if you've been on a level 10 meeting before, but it's a very strict disciplined meeting approach, meaning you literally go in, it's a 90 minute meeting. It's at the same time every week. It starts at an ends on time and it has a very specific agenda. And I'm probably somebody who just kind of goes off piste a little bit too much, right? So it's like something would come up and you're like, all right, I'm looking at this business scorecard. And the way that you're meant to do this on the business scorecard is you talk through the business scorecard, any KPI that is off, you say off and you move it to the top of the issues list and you talk about it there. Whereas what we would do is things like something silly, right? Like, so that made me think of this. And then all of a sudden you're like, wouldn't it be great if we did this, right? And then you wouldn't actually talk about the biggest issues on your list. So we just didn't do that good. I mean, and that's one simple thing, but all that to say that we've been using it for about five years, but the way that we implemented in this kind of self-implementation approach meant that if you talk to like a professional EOS person, they'd be like, eh, they're not really fully using EOS, right? When they look at it now, like they kind of joke, we think we've been using it, but actually not to the kind of strictest letter of the law. How would you do it differently if you would do it today? I would actually have more kind of formal EOS certified implementer. One of those folks do it a little bit sooner. We actually now have somebody on the team that is helping to create some of that rigidity. And it's, I can see it immediately how powerful it is. But, you know, to be honest, looking back on it, it wasn't in our budget to do that at the time, right? When we were doing that, we kind of needed a lot of DIY type approaches. So it's hard to say I would be able to go back and do something differently because there was only so many resources at the time that we were doing that. That definitely would have accelerated things a bit. What's the ballpark cost for implementing it professionally? What we're doing is actually bringing in a fractional integrator, which is you know incredibly pricey, like 20 to 30K a month. But there's definitely less expensive ways that you can do that as well. So you can actually bring in somebody who maybe is a coach that has somebody on your team that's helping you implement or some of those things. What does your business look like with EOS implemented versus not? The kind of biggest part to, and this is actually something we didn't do at the beginning. So this is an example of something that resonated with me that we didn't implement, is this idea that every business has a visionary and it has an integrator. And those aren't the same person. I mean, that seems simple, but that's a revolutionary concept in most businesses. The person who starts the business 
is also the person who runs the day-to-day, right? So the CEO is not only the, I come up with the idea, but also the person that oversees all the people doing the ideas. What EOS does at its core is it separates out the idea of a visionary and an integrator. So for example, a visionary is the person who has the vision and the ideas and basically says, this is the direction that we're heading. This is what we want to do. And that person isn't always the person who both has the best leadership approach to actually also being the person who gets the business on the right cadence, doing the right things on a day-to-day basis and getting those things done. Those are very different personalities. EOS separates those two personalities out and makes them into distinct roles. Usually what you see happen in businesses is you've got the person who is the entrepreneur and they, you know, they start out, they're the visionary, they've got all the ideas and they're like, all right, I'm going to move into this phase where like, I'm not only doing the day-to-day, but I'm also coming up with a strategy and I'm hiring people and I'm managing that team. And then they keep going up and then they hit the ceiling of like, oh, well, I'm actually really good at strategy, but like, I don't know how to grow and manage a team. I don't know how to make sure SOPs happen. I don't know how to like, manage the the tech that sits behind the business, for example, like all of this, just like keeping things running and making sure that you're heading in the right direction and issues are being eliminated and opportunities are being capitalized on. Those people aren't, it's not the same personality. It doesn't do the same thing. So that is the core of why EOS has been really important for us is literally separating that out and saying, this is one job. This is another job. I'm not particularly good at this. You're not particularly good at this. Let's divide that out and actually get things done as opposed to this hybrid approach of like ideas and implementation, not always being able to kind of keep pace of each other in terms of being done. What were the results? What results did you expect and what results did you start to see? It's hard to know how to explain it exactly because we previously weren't actually tracking results in the same way. (laughs) Like part of what, what EOS does is the phrases they use is, you know, it kind of means there's nowhere to hide, right? So what EOS does is it creates really, really good clarity around KPIs, who owns each of those KPIs, and then quarterly rocks. And the rocks, each person on the leadership team, and really each person in the company usually has a particular rock that they're responsible for, which is like a specific thing that they need to do to really improve the business in a three-month time period. What you see is that success probably is about 80% of rocks getting done in any given quarter. Not, you're never going to have something where every single thing is done perfectly. You know, life happens, business dynamics change. And so the reason why I'm having a hard time explaining the difference between now versus before we were using EOS is that it wasn't that well defined, right? Like we wouldn't start out a quarter and say, here are our goals and here's what good looks like and all that. We'd be like, oh, here's an idea. Let's go do that. And then like three weeks into it, it'd be like, oh, but this is a better idea. Let's do that one instead. And so there wasn't as much of the rigidity of process to even know if you were getting things done or not. It was just a little bit harder to control and more chaotic. I'm going to be vulnerable here and show how much of a dick I am in my head. I I have like a (laughs) psychological problem with reading this book. And part of it is, is like, it feels like the system, it's like, hey, here's how the ideal business works. And then Gino builds this system that's very proprietary, using their own terminology, like rocks. No one's ever said rocks before except Gino. And like you even said, we didn't even track any EOS stats. EOS stats are different than normal stats. You know, you get kind of halfway through the book and you're like, man, I really got to hire somebody to implement this, you know? And it does feel a bit like arbitrary. Like we're just going to do all this so we're all on the same page. And literally we're going to be on Gino Wickham's page. So part of me was like, you know, kudos to you, Gino. This is genius. You're going to build an amazing business off of the back of this framework. But part of me also is very sympathetic to the idea that we need frameworks, even if they are arbitrary in our businesses. So I'm just curious as to what you think of that critique and what you would say to it. I liked the book. I liked reading the book. I like the idea of there being a defined way that you go about things. So like that to me feels good and safe and (laughs) comfortable. So I like that. What I don't like, just being, you know, totally transparent, is I don't like kind of the whole online world that sits around the implementation of this book. I think it's very difficult to differentiate who are people that really understand EOS and what's kind of the people who can really, really help you and the systems that can really help you and the online tools that can really help you versus what feels a little bit like this kind of tag on thing to this book that they're selling you like less substance, right? So I almost kind of equate it to 
when the whole world of SEO, you know, kind of first came out. We all knew that we needed to figure out how to live in the world of Google and to be able to use SEO. But there were so many people that were doing kind of shady SEO tactics and not doing the right way that it was actually very difficult to hire someone to help you do it. And over time, that's kind of washed its way through. And now it's very above board. There's high expectations around that, like the people who, you know, there's companies that do a really terrific job in this area. Whereas I think right now, less so now than maybe a couple of years ago, there just were so many kind of, I don't know, like non-reputable business people living in the world of SEO and working, trying to pitch the idea, I mean, not SEO, of EOS. And that turned a lot of people off, right? You'd like Google it and you'd find all these sites and they're trying to sell you a package or a program or a software and most of it like didn't have a lot of substance behind it. So it kind of sullied the thing, the book for me a little bit when I looked into that. What would you say would be an appropriate like revenue level or headcount to consider a system like EOS? While you answer that, there's something that Dave mentioned to me a few weeks ago, which is that he felt certain sorts of businesses would be more appropriate for EOS. I'm curious if you have opinions about that. I would have said that probably if you start when it's small, it makes it so much easier, right? So like I would almost go the other way. I think actually as you get bigger, it's more like, oh, are we going to really like unearth all of these established ways of doing things and then move into EOS? I think it actually gets harder the more you grow and maybe less necessary the more you grow because you figured out you know, how to do some of those in your business. I don't know for sure, but I think it's not necessarily a size thing. I think it's better to start sooner and probably easier to implement sooner. You know, I don't think it necessarily has to do with, with size. Obviously, if you're like a one-man show and you're trying to do these level 10 meetings with lists of issues with yourself, like it doesn't quite make sense. So <laughs> you need a couple of people that are leadership positions to, for this to make sense because they need to be able to walk away and own issues and own opportunities and have rocks that they're working on. So you definitely need a team once you have a couple of people that are doing things in a genuine way, not a couple of you know, assistants, but rather people that are actually helping you to grow the business. But yeah, EOS is definitely focused on individual accountability for people. So if you've got a heavy people-based business, it makes a lot of sense because it's about holding people accountable and having the right people in the right seats. I'm just trying to visualize what EOS might mean for me. What dimensions could I expect to see improvement in? Like clarity, like work-life balance? Am I just going to feel like a sense of security that I know where my numbers are? I know what, Or am I going to start making more money? Am I going to start making more sales? Like what are the dimensions that you feel like EOS could really improve businesses in? It definitely for the kind of work-life balance of the entrepreneur that's used to wearing both those hats and may or may not want to do both those things, i.e. both be visionary and integrator. I think that's probably the biggest thing we've seen in terms of improvement. So are you a visionary or an integrator? Well, see, this is what's interesting about <laughs> about me. So usually, so they, you do these tests when you first start kind of thinking about EOS. And when you're hiring somebody to be, say, an integrator, they literally have a test that assesses whether you're a visionary or an integrator. And I tested to be able to do both, right? So I tested kind of that middle ground to both. Usually people test very much on a visionary role or very much as an integrator role. That sounds good, but it's not because it means you're kind of doing a little bit of both and teetering back and forth between the two. And it's very uncommon for that to be the case. Usually someone's either a visionary or an integrator. And so, for example, for Dave, he very much is the visionary mindset, right? He's the one who's always thinking of the big ideas. He's got that like when he goes to these, you know, L10 meetings, he's the one who is coming up with like kind of big picture ideas and any of that. And if like there's a KPI that's off. He's getting people off track. Yeah, totally. He's totally getting people <laughs> off track. And then you get him on, you know, you've got an integrator that's like, that's a great idea. We will do that for the next quarter. And he's kind of like, darn it. Okay. But you know what? That makes sense. That is more important than the other thing, you know, like, and a lot of people are, are like that. So I think you can definitely see an improvement in work-life balance in the sense that like you're doing one of two hats as opposed to both of them. But I also think, you know, I don't know, maybe this is just me talking, but I also think a lot of people who are strategic thinkers and entrepreneurs aren't necessarily wanting to do some of those. So even if they have enough time and there's enough scope, aren't necessarily the best suited for the day-to-day -day of running a business or growing a team. So I think it also improves how much time you have to work on what you're better at, right? Like the thing that you 
bring to the table, which is strategic thinking and planning and big ideas, if you're not constantly spending your time hiring or managing or running reports or any of that kind of stuff, it actually gives you the opportunity to have that headspace back to be able to do some of that bigger picture thinking. The other thing I would say is that it really creates clarity around accountability for the team. So you get more things done because of the fact that it's very clear what people are doing. So they go deep and get something done once as opposed to shallow on several things. And that might have been something that our business was just particularly bad at. But I've heard that commonly come up as in like, you're sort of trying to tackle 10 things and like you end any three month time period and you think, hmm, I mean, I did a little of 10 things, but like I only got one done. Whereas this creates that like, this is what I'm doing. And you literally say, and I'm not doing these other things. And so you get more done. It requires more patience, right? Because it's sometimes easier to go into all of them at once, but you get more deep, genuine, this is fully done, which really helps the business more overall. I think it, you know, on a con side, I think if you want to be incredibly nimble, it's a little bit difficult because it's really stopping you from pivoting very, very frequently. If you don't have traction yet, then you shouldn't use traction. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this is a sales pitch for it, huh? <laughs> Carrie, we really appreciate you coming by the podcast and uh, sharing your story with us today. Yeah, great to talk to you. Thank you. So many thanks to Carrie McKeegan from Greenback Expat Tax Services. Love watching the way she processes ideas and executes on philosophies like right in front of my eyes. Really cool to have this conversation about homeschooling and EOS. A little bit more on that next week. So stick around for that one. We'll be back next Thursday morning, as always. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.